It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. We will halve inflation, grow the economy, reduce debt. Nothing's changed. The circus moves on, rinse and repeat. We have an opportunity to become Europe's Silicon Valley. We can perhaps be a broker of some sort with Ukraine. We expect inflation to come off quite rapidly in the rest of this year. Obviously, we want to see that happen. What we now need is a period of stable, quiet, serious government. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Caroline Hepkip. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. Um, I can't help but feel in this conversation around public sector pay that there's a sense of uh, uh, an angry parent say, saying to children, this is your final warning. This is the last you're going to hear about this. There's nothing else. So don't make me turn this car around. But I, I do... Are I you do... talking about the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, uh, saying that uh, his pay offer is final and... Uh, uh, this well, to, for to, public sector workers. To the extent that it feels a little bit futile, because I feel like there's also some rebellious children who are not going to necessarily be very pleased that this is uh, the last uh, offer on the table, so the government says. Now, this is the story around them supporting the recommendations from the public sector pay bodies, uh, the idea that police pay will go up by 7%, teachers to get a 6.5% increase, doctors to see a 6% rise. So supporting the public sector pay bodies is one step, the government making a very clear political statement saying that, you know, which has been the message all along, they'll follow the recommendations of the bodies. Mm. Some unions don't seem too yes. displeased with this. Teachers unions have already said they're going to recommend that the members accept this offer. Other unions, though, less happy. Yes, the unions being the uh, naughty children in uh, your analogy, presumably. Uh, the <laughs> less enthusiastic... anyone who's offended by my naughty children <laughs> analogy, but... The- yeah, less enthusiastic, much less enthusiastic. The junior doctors, for one, they want 35%, what they call pay restoration, because their pay has fallen behind in real terms over the last few years. They are on the second day at the moment of their record uh, five-day strike. So they are very certain that uh, 6 or 7% is not enough for them. Well, that real terms point is, is a good one, because none of the offers that we're including here are in actual real terms increase no. in pay. In fact, they're all less than the rate of inflation. So for, for any... For any measure yeah. of that, that's something that, you know, 
I think any any union could make that argument at this stage. No, absolutely. But the problem is, actually, how do you pay for that in any case? Sunak's promised that no frontline services would be cut to find the money. Uh, but he's also warned that some uh, policies would have to be, quote, reprioritized. So there's a huge issue about... Um, uh, how the government is going to do this, uh, promising no new borrowing or spending in order to fund the extra pay. And yes, although Sunak has come round now and said, you know, support for the public sector pay review bodies, there was a moment where there was quite a lot of yeah. briefing, it would seem out that, that maybe the government well, was not going to do that. Was that just them brandishing a big stick? Yeah, well, I think really interesting messaging on the government, because you say ministers have repeatedly over the last few weeks hinted that they perhaps wouldn't uh, take the proposals from the pay review bodies. So I think we were all expecting that. Well, I certainly was. Perhaps I was being naive. But now, perhaps uh, perhaps this is a way of the government getting putting pressure on the unions to accept them. Uh, the Rishi Singh, that's called these a fair offer on pay. These are the official suggestions of the pay review bodies. Mm. So the government's trying to paint these as a sensible thing to do. Yeah, but it's not like Labour were offering anything more or actually coming out with a specific mm. target figure to give those employees. No, and so. we've asked them many times. And mm. of course, uh, unsurprisingly, they didn't want to, to pin their, their, their colours to the mast. And this is also a clever game of playing with public opinion. People are sick of the strikes in many parts of services they're being affected by. You know, think, uh, you know, any parent that's had to cope with schools being closed over certain uh, days while, while teachers have been on strike, the rail strikes we've talked about so much. There is a large public awareness of these issues over a long period mm. of time and, and is the government playing into that fatigue that people have around strikes? Absolutely and look we're going into the summer holidays there are workers at Gatwick that are going to be striking we just discovered today so yes. you know it's in it's August not, yeah that is going to be unwelcome for the parents who finally got the kids back to school <laughs> trying to go on holiday oh don't look at me <laughs> I am seething yes well, look, that is one of the stories that we are following to see how the other unions will react to that and how the government is going to play the ongoing resolution of some of those ongoing industrial disputes. But from public sector pay to another story, which is now in the private sector, uh, but still causing the government a lot of grief. Yeah, now, the, the water industry has been making numerous headlines over the past year and mostly for the wrong reasons. Leaking pipes, widespread sewage discharges and more recently issues around corporate debt. One company, Thames Water, owes £14 billion. And that has led MPs to focus on the regulator off what and growing concerns about whether it's done its job properly. Yeah, our energy reporter Priscilla Azevedo Roca joins us now in the studio for more on this story. Um, Priscilla, this is very interesting. What is off what being criticised for? Quite a list. <laughs> Hi, Caroline. So basically, off what uh, is being criticised for lack of action. So as a regulator, you had to ensure that companies were getting investment from um, from from private from the private sector, while guaranteeing that customers were having access to water and bills was, weren't going very high, right? So, But at the same time, Ofwat is being criticized for letting them take massive profits, both the investors in the companies taking dividends and the bosses of those companies, while not improving the infrastructure. And we've seen sewage, leaks, and that has been in the headlines for the past year or so, right? Yeah. A particular criticism over... Uh, the amount of debt which the companies have, have got into. Of course, when interest rates were close to zero, running up a £14 billion debt, well, not so much of a problem. And of course, the debt has increased massively, hasn't it, over the past 10 years. And it does seem that off what, at least according to the MPs, have not really had their eye on the ball with this. Yeah, that is right. So 
Uh, it's not a problem that is very specific to the water industry. Companies have loaded up on debt over the past 10 years or so in a low interest rates environment. Everyone expected interest rates to go up, but not at the, the, the speed that it happened. And what happens with Thames Water in particular, that it was a cause of concern, is that most of their debt was linked to inflation. And that has caused the debt to triple at a even... Triple. Like to go to triple at an even faster pace, you know, like it went so high because, um, as you know, inflation in the UK has been persistent. So the chairman then of Offwat did speak to the Environment Committee this week. How did that go in your view? In my view, he was more confident this time around. He said that he he was going to take a more muscular approach to the problems of the water companies. But we are yet to see what does that mean, right? How muscular can it be? Uh, what What is next for Wolfwald? What are they going to do? And what does that actually mean? I, I suppose that's also because the shareholders did decide to invest £750 million into Thames Water. So the kind of immediate threat of it being taken into government ownership didn't happen. So perhaps, yeah, the off-what boss also has a bit more, uh, yeah, a bit more confidence that maybe that, you know, that the nationalisation won't be needed. But of course, it's not the end of the money story either. More broadly, the UK water industry needs more money. Priscilla, how much money does it need? It needs millions, even billions of pounds. You know, for the next investment period, we're talking about £25 billion. The next investment Investment period is from 2025 to 2030. So right now, all those companies, they have, it is not something that is exclusive to Thames Water, but Thames Water is the biggest and the highest, like the highest indebted. So they all have a very high level, level of debt to their equity investments. So they all need to raise money from equity investors to bring down that debt and consecutively be able to raise more from markets. So it's kind of like a circle. It's kind of an impossible problem to to square. Just to, sorry, just to, just to use your your circle analogy, because uh, they can't borrow a load of money, obviously, because it's very expensive to borrow money, and they could raise prices. But with inflation, what it is, that is going to be highly unpopular. So they they're really in a bind, aren't they? They are, because raising prices, this is not going to be effective, of course, because the prices now are locked for the current investment period, but they need to raise prices for the next investment period. Which starts uh, when? Uh, 2025. Oh, wow, okay. And uh, there were some calculations, actually, that that could leave a lot of people in what is called water poverty. You know, like, if the if Thames Water puts the water bill on average by a hundred percent higher a hundred pounds higher, sorry, that would mean that about one point one million people in the London area will not be able to afford their bills. But hang on, water bills have been going up way above inflation for years now anyway. I mean, I am a London, you know, water bill payer myself. So yeah, um we're already in that situation. I wonder whether you know, politically, there's going to be more pressure actually to increase bills. What is the latest, though, specifically on Thames Water's financial problems? The latest on Thames Water is that they are negotiating right now with the equity investors because they need, they provided the, the first 750 million on Monday, but that is uh, something that will. Like, as some market participants told me, it's something that will keep the ball rolling for the time being. They need more money and they they have 2.5 billion of extra investments for the next investment period. But that will be conditional on what they do to improve sewages. So the investors are on board, but they're not really. Right. So it's a, it's a wait and see situation. Okay. okay. 
So then this is very much in the public domain and, and being kind of watched as, you know, this was part of the big privatization drive in the kind of Thatcher era. A lot of people now quite disillusioned with whether that worked or not. How would you describe it? Is it kind of corporate negligence? Who is to blame here? Or does everybody get a slice of that blame? I think everybody gets a slice of that blame. But the regulator has a very, very important role to play that he hasn't played since it, since um, since he was established in 1989, right? Because um, investors come in, they provide money, and they expect returns. But at the same time, the regulator needs to make sure that those companies are investing in infrastructure. We need to remember how Thames Water got here. Thames Water have been piling up debt, uh, and this hasn't been at the forefront of the news until last month the co- the, of what went to the companies and said, hey, you need to improve your infrastructure because leakages are out of control. We have sewage spillings at the beaches and it doesn't look good. So they had to put together this plan that they will present in October. And Thames Water was like, OK, I don't have space to raise any more money. So that's how we got here. Right. So and at that time, of what said, OK, the modernization is needed. And they even called it the biggest um, modernization of the water system since Victorian era. So Priscilla, a whole host of problems for the industry and Uh, quite a lot for the government, quite frankly. What's next? What should we be watching out? What should we be watching out for in the next uh, next few months? So we need to be watching out what Thames Water is going to decide for the next investment period, which I said is 2025 to 2030, because that's going to be the conditions the investors put to provide more money for the next period. So they need the money, but at the same time, they need to be able to provide a credible business plan to the regulator. We also need to watch out for the other water companies in the system that also have um, high level of debt to equity. And if if they are going to do something and act now, looking at what has happened to Thames Water, or if we're going to have more victims of the same uh, vicious circle moving forward. Yes. So, so, so it's, a, it's, a case of, yeah, it's a case of what, like, is Thames Water a circuit breaker for the system? Or are we going to continue to see that? Okay, and surely a hugely political story to follow as well. Priscilla Azevedo-Roca, thanks so much for joining us with the details uh, of that story. Well, another challenge facing the UK is actually rising temperatures. It affects the water industry, but so many other uh, industries too. I mean, just look at the situation across southern Europe this week, where there are warnings of record temperatures being hit this month. The highest average daily global temperatures were also reached. That was in early July. Remember the three days in a row where we smashed records that have been held since 2016. So as episodes of hot weather become more frequent. How prepared is the UK? Let's bring in Bloomberg Opinion Economist Lara Williams, who's been writing about this topic. What is the projection, Lara? Good to have you on the programme for how the UK might be affected by heat waves in the future. Again, this is a story about UK infrastructure. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. So it's not just heat waves that we need to be worried about, even though they are becoming more frequent and intense. But we also, you know, temperatures in general are going to get a lot hotter. Um, a study just published um, took a look at how going, um, you know, if we overshoot that 1.5 uh, degree Celsius of warming target that we have and go to two degrees, 
UK is going to see um, one of the highest relative increases in uncomfortably hot days. So we're going to have a third more uncomfortably hot days, you know, where you would want um, cooling interventions like air conditioning and fans. And, you know, our houses aren't really, you know, built to, uh, you know, keep the heat out. We're, we're, we've, you know, they've been steered towards staying warm. So that's a huge adaptation challenge. And, you know, it has implications for mortality and productivity as well. Yeah, absolutely massive implications and not just from the uncomfortable point of view of it being particularly hot. There are, as you say, big other structural issues to think about. What sort of planning is being done in the UK for this? So, you know, not much at the moment. Um, You know, if you look at the, you know, the net zero strategy doesn't really mention sustainable cooling at all. And it's been mainly focused on decarbonizing heat. Um, the, the the heat and building strategy does acknowledge the potential future demand of cooling, but it doesn't distress any, you know, potential future policies. Um, so, you know, in short, not much at all. Laura, how do we compare with other countries? You mentioned that we're already sort of badly prepared given the, the, the historical nature of our, our housing stock. But are we doing better things on planning or are we doing worse? So, um, you know, there are some countries that have, you know, national cooling action plans, but they're pretty much all in the global south because obviously heat is very much a very current problem for them. Um, really been a blind spot, you know, countries in the northern hemisphere, as far as I know, don't have many cooling strategies. And, you know, demand for cooling doesn't appear when you think about sustainable development. You know, the UN has this 2030 sustainable development agenda with 17 goals and 169 targets and absolutely none of them mention demands for cooling so mm. it really has been uh you know a massive oversight um so you know at least we're not doing worse than anywhere else but we're also we're not doing better which is really strange right because actually this week we had out data uh, that was published in nature an analysis of the eurostat data out of europe that showed the heat waves last year in europe killed more than 61,000 people um and you've already had lots of uh, warnings around this uh, in italy and spain and greece and so it is sort of current um are people in the uk rushing to buy air conditioning which is not at all popular or current frankly in in the uk at the moment are people buying more of that now what i've seen is that you know during last year's heat wave um you know sales of air conditioning units did go up like more than 500 percent um and you know searches for homes with air conditioning tripled so people are definitely you know in those really hot periods people kind of become desperately hot and i guess they are like what will cool me down faster but it's really not the ideal solution um you know it's they've got air conditioning has coolants which you know if they get out into the atmosphere that they have more global warming potential than co2 and they're obviously really energy uh you know hungry um units so uh that would only kind of lead to a vicious cycle of more warming and more air conditioning demand so what are the other solutions out there then, Lara? How can we prepare ourselves for more hot weather in the future? So there's um, plenty of passive solutions which have been used. You know, if you look around the world, lots of local, locally built homes have been using these strategies to keep cool for, for you know, centuries. So it's things like, you know, artificial shade or natural shade. So the use of trees or sh- window shutters, um, 
uh, things like that. Um, and there's also new innovations in like, you know, this ultra reflective paint could be useful. You know, people could paint their, their roofs in this uh, ultra reflective paint and that would keep, keep yeah. their homes um, much cooler. Yeah, it it is interesting actually. Um, I mean, Paris has had a strategy published a few years ago about having cooling uh, or heat sinks in the city centre. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, London has a lot more open green space in the centre than Paris does. But the idea of there being, you know, allowing trees to grow larger, allowing more space for essentially taking up parts of pavements and putting in uh, flower beds or spaces for vegetation to grow as part of the idea of strategy for for creating cooling uh, spaces or spaces where heat will sink more. Um, Lara, can you give us some cause for optimism about this? You know, what should we be thinking about kind of in the future? So, you know, the good news is the government has been receptive. And I think at the start of this month, an inquiry opened up to look at sustainable cooling in the UK. So that's positive. And, you know, globally, it's also, you know, global cooling is going to be a theme at this year's, um, you know, UN climate conference. So uh, there's going to be a global cooling stock take report, um, you know, launched and um, the UN is developing a global cooling pledge with, you know, the United Arab Emirates, which is the conference host. So hopefully, you know, there'll be a lot more focus on this and it will become more of a priority uh, Mm. for, you know, governments everywhere. So that's something to be hopeful for. Laura, thank you so much. Ending on a positive then on uh, Friday. Uh, Laura Williams, our Bloomberg opinion columnist, who's been writing about, well, how the UK government strategy is dealing with rising temperatures. Look, I think this goes to the next topic that I want to talk about on the programme, you know, short-termism versus long-termism, the difficulty of actually delivering on big policy ideas. So the long-awaited parliamentary report into China, into the UK's relationship with China and China's uh, relationship with us has really been utterly scathing. I don't think you can describe it in in other terms. The Intelligence and Security Committee laying out how the government's short-termist approach has left it severely handicapped when it comes to dealing with Beijing's economic dominance, but also with spying. So this committee has raised particular concerns about uh, the infiltration of British academic institutions and the energy sector. MPs warning about China's, quote, whole state threat and that the UK now is playing catch up on this. Look, there is a big divide within the Conservative Party about kind of those who are hawkish on China, Mm. those who are perhaps more aligned with Rishi Sunak and the current Foreign Secretary who are less so. But I think this report is raises some absolutely enormous issues. Yeah, absolutely. And look, it's to show that this is an issue that's very much at the forefront of politics as well. I know the Telegraph supporting on this, picking out a few points that China has, in their words, successfully penetrated every sector of the British economy and effectively bought universities. The state intelligence apparatus was so said to be targeting Britain and its interests prolifically and aggressively. Uh, they, this report describing the government's response is completely inadequate and that Chinese money was being readily accepted by the government with few questions being Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the most fascinating geopolitical stories of our times, isn't it? This Mm. decoupling with China, which in fairness to the British government is taking place all around the world. The West has become incredibly hawkish on China really quite quickly. If you Mm. just cast your eyes back, cast your mind back to that famous picture of uh, Xi Jinping standing in a pub, in a country pub Mm. with David Cameron drinking a pint. It was uh, all embrace of China, wasn't it? Let's get the Chinese money in here. We need the investment. Britain uh, trying to get Chinese money into the country. 
that seems like such a long time ago. We certainly had many prime ministers over, over that period. <laughs> yes. But actually, it was just in 2016. Yeah. That is just seven years ago. And the, the, the change in policy since then has been really, really quite stark. Well, but is it really a change in policy? Because, you know, some people would say, actually, there's been quite a lot of flip-flopping, quite a lot of... It's, it's an immensely difficult topic, isn't it? It does put pressure, though, I think, this report on the Sunak government because they're trying to take a sort of more nuanced approach to the relationship with Beijing, which has had big ups and downs in the last few years from the Chinese perspective also. Remember, the Foreign Secretary James Cleverley's meant to be going to China just in the next few weeks but actually we don't have any official confirmation of whether that's actually going to happen or not they're still wrangling about you know the agenda yeah I think it's been a it's been a messy pivot because let's face it China is the world's second biggest economy you know closing in on the United sure. States very rapidly and there is a huge amount of money which is very useful particularly for Britain which has cut off many of its ties with the European Union yeah I should just also mention that the government and Rishi Sunak in particular did make a statement to Parliament about this saying that we are not complacent we are keenly aware that there is more to do but that led to something of a back and forth because then the chairman of the intelligence committee who's a conservative himself said that the government's response was defensive. So, yeah, yeah that re- big China report. Really interesting one to watch. Uh, thinking about the political events coming up in the next week, uh, an exciting week to look forward to, particularly for you and Pots, because we've got three by-elections, three of your favourite things. I am very excited. Three juicy by-elections <laughs> coming on Thursday. I'm going to take you through them in the order of uh, juiciness. In third place, Uxbridge and South Rice Lip, home, of course, uh, famously to Boris Johnson. Uh, on the, the edge of... juicy. Mm? Is that the least juicy? Well, I think so. It's certainly least juicy in term in electoral terms. So the Tory majority there is seven thousand. It's the kind of seat which Labour really, really needs to be winning if they're going to get anywhere close to a majority. If Labour don't win that on Thursday, they'll be very disappointed. Interesting, and not just because of Boris Johnson, which of course will come up a great deal on the doorstep, but also the ULES. It might sound boring, but that's a very con- controversial policy in outer London. Uh, the expansion not of this boring. I mean, essentially, if you're trying to get anywhere. Yeah. Well, of course, people are being forced to pay. Is it twelve quid or fifteen? quid to drive their cars per day that has not gone down well and that's a Labour policy from the Mayor of London City Khan so that will be on the doorsteps in Uxbridge and South Ricelip. Somerton and Froome is a seat held by 19,000 votes over the Lib Dems but previously a Lib Dem seat that will be interesting in the blue yellow battle and finally I think most interesting Selby and Ainsty in North Yorkshire this is uh, a seat which the Tories hold with a 20,000 majority over the Labour Party so this is a really big test Uh, for Keir Starmer. The old Selby seat was held by Labour, but it's become much more Tory since that was abolished in 20 cents. So that is a really uh, juicy fight up in North Yorkshire. Ah, you, and these are my favourite parts of this programme as we tell (laughs) things like that. Um, One other piece of news that we're thinking about as well, the Labour Party not just courting voters ahead of those by-elections, they're also appealing to businesses. This is a piece from our colleague Alex Wickham on our politics team on the Bloomberg Terminal today and, of course, on the Bloomberg website as well. According to his sources, Rachel Reeves, Starmer's uh, would-be Chancellor, has been sending personal letters to several Tory donors in recent weeks, Mm. inviting them to one-on-one breakfast meetings. Uh, The letter apparently casts Labour as the only fiscally responsible party with a credible plan for growth. It reminds me of that oft-quoted joke by Tory grandee Michael Heseltine back in the 1992 general election talking about the uh, Labour prawn cocktail charm offensive. All those prawn cocktails for nothing. Never have so many crustaceans died in vain. Oof. Still still cutting all these years later. Okay, that's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe. Give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Walcock and our audio engineer was Marufal Hussain. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Stephen Carroll. And I'm Caroline Hepke. We'll be back with more on Monday. This is Bloomberg. 
Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.